It's time for our regular segment, Legally Speaking. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Interesting stories on the agenda today. Looking now, sentencing for driving without due care and attention in a case that resulted in death. There's a lot there. Let's unpack it. There sure is. And this is a case from Vancouver Island. It's a case from up near Campbell River from the Old Island Highway. And it's simply a tragic fact pattern. A fact pattern involved a 21-year-old who was driving one way on the island, Old Island Highway and a 29-year-old teacher driving the other direction. Um, and the uh, 21-year-old uh, crossed inexplicably the yellow uh, line on a slight curve. There was a collision, uh, and the uh, teacher passed away. It was just a tragic uh, circumstance. The young man that was driving uh, was charged with an offense under uh, Section 144 uh, of the uh, Motor Vehicle Act, uh, which makes it an offense to drive without due care and attention. Um, and it's a category of case which can be very challenging where they are prosecuted in terms of, well, how do you sentence somebody for that? What factors do you take into account? Uh, here, uh, there was no evidence of any intoxication, no evidence of any excessive speeding, no evidence of any aggressive driving of any kind. There wasn't bad weather. It was during the day. Uh, the uh, 21-year-old was driving back from school. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and furthermore, that uh, fellow had uh, no not only no criminal record, no driving record. Right. So not somebody who drives carelessly, no evidence of anything like that. Just this inexplicable accident with a terribly tragic result. Uh, the uh, teacher who uh, was killed, uh, you know, there's lots of evidence before the judge about uh, what a positive impact she'd had on the lives of other students and what a loss that was for her extended family. Uh, the young man who was the other driver is obviously remorseful. He pled guilty uh, for doing this, right, for causing the, the accident in, in this way. Yeah. And he was sentenced, to, you know, I should say it was a joint submission, and we've talked about those before. That's a case where the Crown and the defense agree on what the appropriate sentence would be. Uh, and where that occurs, a judge is, in fact, required uh, to do uh, what both lawyers are asking the judge to do, unless what the judge is being asked to do is so inappropriate that it would bring the administration of justice into disrepute, right, which is a very high bar. Mm. And the reason the law is that way um, is that otherwise cases just could never resolve. Every case would turn into a trial, right? Yeah. Uh, because if, if where you had an agreement between the Crown and the defense, if a judge could just ignore that and do whatever they wanted, it would result in many more people saying, well, I... Uh, you know, how, how do we resolve a case, right? It just would proceed to trial, which isn't workable. And so that's the uh, legal framework. Uh, and uh, here, the joint submission put before the judge was a fine of $1,200, uh, 25 hours of community work service, and a 10-month driving prohibition. Um, and that's in keeping with other sentences for driving with, you know, for this kind of a motor vehicle act driving offense when there's nothing else going on, right? You know, there's sort of these series, the judge looked at the series of uh, tragic circumstances where, you know, uh, somebody tragically died, but the level of moral blameworthiness of the person who, uh, you know, was responsible for the accident was very low, right? Yeah. 
Um, and so it, it raises that just really challenging sentencing issue, which is what do you do when you have a very low degree of moral culpability but a tragic outcome? Yeah. Um, and the judge ultimately concluded the judge was bound to impose the sentence that was being asked for. Moreover, it was in keeping with other sentences of that kind. And the judge took pains to point out that the sentence is not intended in any way to be a reflection of the value of the life that was lost, which is impossible, right? Mm-hmm. There's no sentence that's going to bring the teacher back. Yeah. Um, and one of the things which this case and other ones like it um, causes me to think about uh, is the issue of whether there should be, in all cases where there's a, a what appears to be a sort of an inexplicable accident, with no other sort of bad behavior, driving behavior around it, whether we should be prosecuting those things at all. Uh, Because, of course, where you have other, uh, not every uh, accident results in a charge and the person, you know, being taken to court, right? Yeah. Sometimes car accidents are just that. Accidents happen, right? In fact, in British Columbia, we seem to have adopted this model of no fault. It's like, well, it's no one's fault at all, right? These things just happen. We don't even bother trying to figure that out, right? We just now, uh, at least on the civil side of things, provide um, ICBC benefits to people regardless of uh, who caused the accident on the basis that that's uh, administratively cheaper to not have to figure out who's responsible or whether there was carelessness there. Um, And so, you know, it's not to say that there aren't cases where there is sort of some serious driving behavior that merit prosecution, right, in addition to any civil outcome of a case. Mm -hmm. But this is an example of the kind of circumstance where there's nothing apparent about the driving that would appear to be blameworthy or careless, right, other than the fact that this inexplicable accident happened, right? It would be certainly a different circumstance if somebody was impaired in some way or they were aggressive or speeding or doing something or anything yeah. <laughs> uh, that would uh, sort of lead you to think, well, that was sort of inappropriate behavior. But here, all of that was absent, along with there being no indication that this person was a bad driver generally, no history at all. Um, and so I, I suppose the thing I would ask people to think about, of course, is just how challenging that is. Because, of course, when there is a decision made, and it's a choice, right, uh, about whether it's in the public interest to prosecute somebody in in circumstances like this, Mm -hmm. um, of course, no sentence that's going to be imposed is going to um, bring back the person who was lost, right? And there's virtually no sentence that could be imposed that would be some measure of the worth of the person who was lost. That's impossible, right? And we don't want to put people in... Uh, you know, we, we don't punish people for its own sake. We, we try to do it in some rational way, right? So why are you doing it? To, you know, deter other people or to rehabilitate the person or some rational purpose for it, right? Um, and so here, when you've got a remorseful person who obviously there was something went to happen, there's some momentary inattention and a tragic result, it does raise, at least in my mind, the issue of not whether this is enough punishment for the person, but whether we should be prosecuting the person at all. Um, because if you do, you, you then wind up with the circumstance, like in this case, where some people are comparing it, saying, well, look, this is a death of a very you know, well-respected uh, member of the community. You know, How can $1,200 be the result of that, right? Um, 
And, you know, the sentence isn't some effort to try to, um, uh, you know, be a measure of the person or the loss. That's impossible, and that's not what's intended here, particularly with a motor vehicle act prosecution. And so I just wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. The case has gotten some um, uh, publicity about the outcome and sort of whether that was a sufficient punishment. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... I suppose the uh, alternative take I would have on it is whether it should be a circumstance where we're seeking punishment at all, mm-hmm. uh, because it's not every case where there's something uh, bad that tragically occurs where it's necessary to come up with a punishment uh, in response to that. Um, you know, sometimes there are in life uh, some genuinely tragic um, accidents, and this would appear to be one of them, and it's not an isolated thing. Uh, the judge reviewed various other cases of tragic things happening with cars, you know, uh, not being put in park and rolling away and, you know, various other things happening, all of which may be some indication of civil liability when we still had that, uh, but whether we need to stretch into uh, criminal or motor vehicle act prosecution, I think, is something that uh, we should all think about as a community, uh, because that is uh, really a choice and uh, a difficult one, uh, particularly when there's this kind of a tragic outcome. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070, we will continue right after this commercial break. Legally speaking, continuing here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Next story on the agenda, Michael, is one that I believe that we have discussed before regarding personal information, the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia, and vicarious liability. Yes, indeed. So this is a uh, brand new decision out of the Court of Appeal uh, dealing with exactly those issues. And the background of it um, is that a number of years ago, uh, there was an employee of ICBC who was selling uh, personal information uh, to a man uh, about the addresses and uh, so forth of vehicles that were parked at the Justice Institute, uh, people who would be training to become police and other first responders. Um, and uh, as a result of uh, this woman who was employed at ICBC, I believe it was a woman, um, who was selling this information to a man for something in the range of $25 per license plate. Um, 13 of the individuals uh, were then targeted for arson and shooting attacks on their homes. Uh, The man purchasing the information from the ICBC employee um, had uh, persuaded himself that uh, in some paranoid way that uh, people who were uh, were controlling him uh, was being targeted and controlled by the Justice Institute. Uh, and so he was uh, purchasing the information from the ICBC employee based on his observations of license plates of people who were going there uh, and then proceeding to engage, in, I think it was like fire bombings and shootings of their homes. Uh, now, that man uh, was uh, convicted and sentenced to 12 years in prison uh, but the next shoe, and the one that was now being dealt with, was that um, there was a class action started against ICBC um, for what occurred. Um, and the uh, action was brought in part under the Privacy Act, uh, which makes it actionable. That is to say you can sue uh, where there is a, uh, a breach uh, under that act. Yes, uh, And that act actually provides that you can uh, bring that kind of a, a claim, even if you don't have proof of actual loss flowing from it. Uh, and the what happened is the, the uh, court, the Supreme Court, classified uh, 
two different groups, one being the people like the 13 people who were firebombed or shot at, uh, and then separate from that, I think it was 79 customers who had their uh, information sold, even if they weren't the subject of, at least so far, uh, a shooting or uh, arson at their home. Um, and the claim was based on this legal concept of what's called vicarious liability. And the concept there is that you can have a circumstance where an employer can be uh, liable uh, for wrongs committed by their employees, which kind of makes sense when you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the challenges that courts have uh, dealt with is the issue of, you know, how do you determine whether it's a circumstance where vicarious liability should apply or not? It's not everything that an employer employee does that the employer could be uh, held responsible for, right? If you're an employer and, you know, your employee just goes rogue and does something completely unrelated to their job, the employer isn't financially on the hook for it, right? So there has to be some limit on that concept. Mm-hmm. And courts have, you know, struggled with that over the years. And one of the things that is looked for is the degree of connection between the wrongdoing and the wrongdoer's uh, employment, right? And as to how connected those things were, right? It's it's one thing if the you know the Walmart employee decides to step out of the store and shoot somebody in the parking lot. You say, well, that has nothing to do with their <laughs> employment there, right? They've just gone off and committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you had somebody who, as a result of you know what their employment was, and one of the other ways it's been articulated is that it empowers uh, the employee in a material way or increases their risk of committing the the kind of uh, uh, activity which is being sued for, right? And so here they say, look, you know, this was uh, the only reason this ICBC employee was able to look up people's addresses and phone numbers based on their license plate was because they were an employee of ICBC with access to the computer system, right? Mm, yes. Uh, and moreover, one of the other things which the Court of Appeal and the trial judge pointed to is just the year before this, ICBC had done an audit and found that employees were indeed doing exactly that, accessing people's private information with no apparent business purpose. So they knew this was going on, and yet they st- didn't do anything that stopped this person from continuing to do it, Right. And so that was a factor. The The other argument that ICBC made unsuccessfully, both at trial and on the appeal, was uh, what I thought was a pretty out-there argument, which was, well, this wasn't private information. That was the other argument they made, saying, well, you know, this is just where you live and your contact information and so on. That's not really private. Uh, that, that got pretty short shift, both uh, uh, at the trial level and on the appeal, uh, pointing out uh, that ICBC had internal an internal code of ethics uh, that speaks about uh, the fact that they have this monopoly over basic uh, car insurance in British Columbia, that they're entrusted with personal information, and how it's important that they keep all of that personal information under proper control when that was not happening, right? Mm, yeah. um, so the uh, appeal, you can probably judge from that, that ICBC brought uh, was unsuccessful. Uh, and so uh, there there will be compensation for these people who, from ICBC, due to these people who had their homes shot at or lit on fire, as well as the people who just had their personal information given to this deranged uh, person, even if those things haven't, uh, in fact, occurred for them. 
Uh, I must say, the other thing which this brought to mind for me, looking at the appeal and reading it, is the issue of just the appropriateness of ICBC appealing this issue at all, right? Now, of course, we all want to get to the right legal outcome, right? And, you know, those are certainly legal arguments to be made about, well, you don't have a privacy interest in your home address and contact information, although that one seemed pretty weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other argument about the vicarious liability, which might have some, you know, legal interest that we just talked about, so what is that and what's the degree of control? But we have to remember here, you're dealing with a public company, which is in this monopoly position, right? And so, to my mind, everything that that kind of an entity is doing should be done with an eye towards fairness and reasonableness, right? Not every legal thing that you can argue and fight about should be argued and fought about, right? Yeah. Um, and it in to that context that it causes me concern is of course we we've had and we've had this discussion previously about the appropriateness of no fault insurance when ICBC is able to make uh, decisions about uh, people's lives and compensation and so forth when there isn't a, a proper and independent review process right some of the review processes are by people that just work for the government basically and so. It it is. I must say, I had some concern as I read through this court of appeal decision about why in the world is ICBC resisting uh, compensation for the people, probably police officers, who had their homes lit on fire or shot at uh, by a deranged person who was able to purchase that information from their employee. Is that really something you should be taking to the court of appeal and resisting? Yeah. Or would the appropriate and fair response to that be, oh my goodness, this is kind of our responsibility. We knew this kind of uh, information was being accessed the year before. It happened again. Terrible consequences. We're terribly sorry about your house. Um, here's the check. Yeah. You know, you, you, you would sort of hope that wouldn't get litigated at all, right? It's And it's not as if it's some, be some crippling amount of money. It would be 79 police officers that had their, you know, other first responders, sheriffs, could be other people like that, right? Who had their personal information sold to somebody who was going around doing that. You would think if you were fair-minded about it, the appropriate response would be, well, okay, fair enough. What are the damages? We shouldn't have allowed this to happen. Let me write you a check and it will send you along a card and an apology. Not, we're going to the court of appeal, 10 years after the fact, fighting tooth and nail, arguing that uh, you had no interest in this private information or it really wasn't private or, gee whiz, should we really be on the hook for this? Why? Why are we lit- why, why would they be litigating it? Yeah. Uh, it's a public entity. Everything they do should be fairness-oriented, and clearly this was not. But anyways, we have an outcome, uh, and hopefully those people will get some compensation for what happened to them. Obviously, a terrible case, and hopefully they put things in place so this is not continuing to happen. Precisely. We have three and a half minutes left. Yeah. Final case on the docket for today is a case involving a sentence appeal and how bail works for a sentence appeal. Um, And the background of this is it's a man who pled guilty to uh, robbery. I think it was of a subway store using a pellet gun uh, and also breaching conditions that he was uh, under at the time. And he was uh, applying for an extension of time to appeal because he hadn't filed the appeal within the required time period. So he had to ask for permission to appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was asking both for that permission and asking to be let out on bail pending the hearing of his appeal. 
And in that regard, when you're applying, first of all, for the extension of time, you have to persuade the uh, a judge of the Court of Appeal that your appeal has some merit to it, right? You're not just wasting time. And on that front, the judge found, yes, indeed, it does. The trial judge looks like they made a factual mistake saying that it was aggravating that the man pointed the pellet pistol at the employee when that didn't happen, right? Everyone looks at Crown's agreement, that was just a mistake. And there was some change in the sentencing legislation since then. So there's certainly something to be argued about on appeal, fine. But on an appeal, to get out on bail, uh, not only do you need to persuade a judge of the Court of Appeal that your appeal has sufficient merit, you also need to show that there would be a unnecessary hardship if you were detained in custody pending the appeal. The man argued that because he had testified for the Crown in some other case, he was being life was being threatened in custody. So there was certainly something to be said there. But you also need to, on an appeal like this, uh, persuade the judge that you would, first of all, surrender yourself if you're released. That was a problem because the man had a long history of previous convictions, including failing to show up in court. And further, you need to satisfy the Court of Appeal judge that your detention is not necessary in the public interest. And on that ground as well, the Court of Appeal uh, judge hearing the bail application and the application for an extension of time concluded that, you know, this man has a very long history going back some 30 years of committing various offenses, including 22 breaches of court orders. And so given that, even though the man's appeal may have merit, uh, and uh, he will have to wait until at least, uh, I think it's October 10th when it's scheduled to argue the appeal. And despite uh, the argument about his life being in danger because of his evidence for the Crown and other cases, uh, the judge uh, applying the test that's applicable to this found that despite all of that, um, there would just be uh, too great a risk that either the man would not show up because he's failed to show up before, um, or, or uh, he would place the public in some danger because of his 30-year uh, history of previous convictions. Um, and so that's how bail is sorted out uh, at that stage. And it's a different uh, approach, of course, because you're dealing then not with a person who's presumed to be innocent, which is what we've got at the beginning of a case. We don't know if the person did it or not. And we presume not, right? Yeah. But when you're dealing with somebody who is pled guilty, it's a very different analysis, right? Um, and that's why the burden would be on him to establish those things, and that's why he didn't. And despite the concerns and the potentially meritorious appeal, uh, he will need to remain in custody at least until October uh, to be able to make those arguments. So that's uh, bail on a sentence appeal. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on the program. Pleasure as always. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye now.